Summer is officially here. The temperature is consistently in the triple digits, and the state legislature is out on break. The halfway point of 2023 is here, finally. While it may seem like the pages of your calendar flipped a little too quickly and it'll be Thanksgiving before we know it, a lot has happened in the first six months in Arizona politics. Arizona got a new Democratic governor. Bills were passed, but a record number of bills were vetoed. Candidates have announced their campaigns for 2024, and water became the hottest topic. With the never-ending news cycle, we wanted to give you an update on the most pressing subjects in Arizona politics and where they stand halfway through the year. Welcome to The Gaggle, an Arizona politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your host, Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Republic. And I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover state politics and policy. Today, we're joined by our colleagues who have covered these issues for a check-in on where things stand as we enter the back half of 2023. Joining us to talk about the ups and downs of the legislative session is gaggle regular Ray Stern. Ray, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. Ray, the 90 folks in the legislature at the outset of the session has changed a bit since we started in January. Two Democrats and two Republicans have departed before Sine die. Let's start with the Democrats. Who left and why? Yes, um, we've lost Raquel Tehran, who is the Senate Minority Leader, um, and she's now running for Congress in the 3rd Congressional District, which has been going to be vacated by Ruben Gallego, who's running for U.S. Senate. And that meant that Representative Flavio Bravo from her district has been moved up to the state Senate, and that left a hole in the House, which has been replaced by um, Quanta Cruz, who's a real estate agent from Phoenix and is now in the House. The other one that we're about to lose is um, Andres Cano, and he is the House Minority Leader. Uh, he's about to put in his resignation because he's going to postgraduate school at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he's going to study public administration um, for a year. And so that is going to leave a, a hole that hasn't been filled yet by Pima County. He hasn't put in his resignation yet, but as soon as he does, that'll trigger the uh, Pima County supervisors to pick someone there. Mary Jo, this is not just the change in the membership of the Senate or the House in the Democrats' case. These are two members of leadership. What does that mean for the Democratic Party uh, during this session and moving forward? Well, I think it means that we've got two pretty ambitious people um, who were <laughs> got themselves elected to leadership and, you know, didn't even get through a full year on that because they saw greener pastures elsewhere. And it opens up opportunities for other Democrats, especially, you know, they have their eye on the 2024 elections where they, you know, think that they can flip the legislature and have Democrats take control of both the House and the Senate. They're going to get a big assist from the first Democratic governor in 14 years, uh, Katie Hobbs. So that left quite a scramble, especially in the vote to replace Cano. That just happened and it lasted nine hours, 11 rounds of voting before they picked veteran lawmaker Lupe Contreras to be the new minority leader. There's been some uh, grousing among Democrats, I gather, that Governor Hobbs did not drive a harder bargain with Republicans throughout the session from the budget to just legislative matters. Does the change in leadership for Democrats 
affect their ability to drive a better deal? Does this change the dynamics working with the governor in any way? Well, potentially. Um, I think that the the new uh, minority leader, Lupe Contreras, is um, going to probably fight the governor as well as Republicans as he goes forward, make sure that they get what they need. I think the bigger change is in Hobbs' chief of staff. And um, Chad Campbell, who's been on the job for all of two weeks, I think is going to be working harder and more aggressively with legislative leaders and having come from legislative ranks. I think he will make a big difference and we'll see a lot more Democratic involvement going forward. Okay, let's shift now to the Republicans. They also had two departures. Who left and why? Well, the most recent one that left is Senator Steve Kaiser from North Phoenix. And he said that he is basically leaving because he needs more family time. But there's a lot of speculation, and some of it is well evidenced, that he has fought with the Freedom Caucus, who kind of represents the far right of the Republican Party, particularly with the loss of two affordable housing bills that he worked very hard on and also had bipartisan support on, but could not get full support from his own party. And right after that is when he announced his resignation. The other person that left was not on her own accord, and this was uh, Representative Liz Harris. And uh, she got expelled from the legislature in April after she had basically allowed false testimony to be brought into a joint hearing that was public. And then when there was an ethics investigation, she essentially lied, looked like she lied to the ethics committee, and then Basically, that brought the uh, wrath of uh, her own party as well as Democrats who voted against her and voted for expulsion. How has the departure of Harris and Kaiser affected the membership of the Republican caucus? The departure of Liz Harris involved sort of a controversial fix to who was going to replace her because Liz Harris was actually nominated as one of the three people to replace uh, her by her very conservative district in Chandler and Gilbert. And so the one who did get picked, Julie Willoughby, is a little bit of an enigma to people. Um, She does have some far-right tendencies but hasn't been as public with them. And so far, it's difficult to tell really where she's going. But if she is perceived as a far right or, or makes a, a, you know steps toward that, it could certainly have some ramifications in the election that's coming up uh, for the primary. Or if she doesn't, that, that could also have some ramifications as people in her district seek someone who's very right wing in order to run against her. And then in the Kaiser district, that's going to be very well watched too, because that's one of Arizona's swing districts. And so it could be a very close race. Judy um, Schwiebert, who is the, the Democrat representative in that district, was like the first one to say that she's going to run for Kaiser's position. And so if a Democrat gets in there and you know Democrats are successful uh, in, the, in the House race as well, just that little change could upset the balance. I would add another ramification of the Liz Harris expulsion is it triggered all these censure votes from Republican precincts um, going against the 13, I believe, the 13 Republican lawmakers who voted to expel Harris. So further showing divisions within the party, and this will probably have uh, an effect on the 2024 elections and who gets nominated. Right. I mean, the Democratic Party has some divisions as well, but not anything close to that, that kind of division in the Republican Party. So in light of all the changes that we have seen, how does all of this factor into next year's session, if we have any insights? Uh, does this change the equation for either party or the, the basic dynamic that we saw 
unfold this first year under Governor Hobbs. Well, one of the impacts we might see next year um, will depend on, like, who replaces Steve Kaiser. He's from a a swing district. He's a center-right Republican. But there is speculation that the precinct committee people in his district might be favoring candidates farther to the right. And perhaps they or you might have a repeat of the whole Liz Harris replacement scenario and what that might mean for electoral chances in 2024 which is going to be especially important in this swing district because it's unlikely to elect in the general election a far-right candidate. And then there's also Julie Willoughby, uh, and and it'll be interesting to see who she joins with in terms of the far-right and adds to their power or makes it more difficult for herself in terms of what her re-election chances or, or her election chances will be since she was just appointed. So it's really the issue of who gets conferred this title of incumbency with these replacements and will those incumbents be able to withstand um, a challenge in their district in 2024. And it's worth noting that in both the House and Senate, if the Democrats get one more seat in each chamber, you have you have a tie, 15-15 and 30-30. And if they get two more, which they keep saying they think they can do that, you're going to have Democratic leadership in the House. That would be the first time in like 60 years. Right. And with Democrats seeming more unified than Republicans, the Republicans may, who knows, maybe uh, have, there might be a leadership challenge to Senate President Warren Peterson or something dramatic like that. So, It's not lost on me what we saw in the 2022 race where Nancy Bartow was defeated, albeit by a very narrow margin, in a district where you can go too far, evidently. Is that a risk for Republicans in Kaiser's district? I would say absolutely. Even though Bartow didn't lose by that much, um, abortion obviously was a huge issue then. And apparently polls show that it's even legal abortion is even more supported by the general public now. So it could be even a bigger danger for a right wing person in the swing district. Another telling feature of this legislature has been the numerous breaks that lawmakers have taken. That's leading to what probably will be the longest session in recent history. So why are all these breaks happening, and what does it signal about the ability to get anything done at the Capitol? Well, the breaks are happening because of divided government, essentially. Um, Now that we've got Democratic uh, Governor Katie Hobbs, the Republican-dominated legislature has taken breaks for mainly two reasons. One is the budget, um, which was a big fight for a long time, and there were breaks on that as uh, they couldn't get one budget passed, and then then they did get a, a budget passed that Governor Hobbs wouldn't sign, and or vetoed, rather. And then uh, it took a while to sort of debate and, and get something that they could all work out together. And then came Prop 400, which is the uh, sales tax extension that would fund transportation in Maricopa County. And that's in some ways been an even bigger fight because there's just uh, two sides that are very firm about their positions. And so that led to, a, I believe, a four-week break. And when they came back, they still couldn't get Prop 400 done. Republicans did get Prop 400 done, and they they presented their own plan, which Governor Hobbs hated and then vetoed. And so now there's they've essentially got all of their work done. They went through the bills that, that they wanted to get through, and they're coming back on July 31st, um, ostensibly to look at the nominations by Governor Hobbs for different state agencies. But there's still a chance that they could address Prop 400 or, or, or something else. 
Okay, so Ray, you've referenced the state budget. Even with the breaks, they still reached a budget deal relatively early on in the session. And there were some compromises there for the various stakeholders on all of it. But even so, this session, as much as anything else, will be remembered for Governor Hobbs's veto pen, which I'm concerned will actually run out of ink if it goes much more. She says there's plenty. (laughs) (laughs) That said, did either side get the upper hand in this year's legislative session as you scope back and, and think of it in its entirety? I mean, I think that that can be certainly debated and maybe someone would challenge my opinion on this, but I I don't think so. I mean, I think that it's still early to tell who's going to really win out here. Um, the budget was not liked by just about everybody. And so who was who the winner there? It's, it's hard to tell. And Prop 400 still hasn't been settled. Um, and so I think that for one thing, Prop 400 should be one of the, one of the telling factors is who is going to blink or who's going to win on that. Um, although there's still some very big challenges for Governor Hobbs to try to make this happen. Um, and so I think when we think about Prop 400 and think about the effort by Governor Hobbs to try to help flip the legislature, I think we'll, we'll find out next year you know, who's going to be the winner here. One thing I would add is that I think the Republican leadership showed that they got the upper hand when it comes to the governor's agency directors. I mean, they have slow walked vetting some of these people. They've rejected a couple of them, leading Hobbs to withdraw their nominations. And these are crucial positions. These are the people that actually run the day-to-day operations of state government. And I think that the Republican imprint on that has been very, very significant and probably affects the possible candidate pool and who the governor will put up for these positions um, in the future. True. And there's also the the culture war aspect of a lot of the bills that, that were put up. When you talk about election reform or culture um, items like anti-CRT bills or the bathroom bill. This is what really drove 120-something vetoes that Hobbs gave the Republicans. So they couldn't really do business together without some Republican wins. And, And Hobbs did sign a lot of laws, but Republicans just absolutely could not get their, their agenda done. Well, Ray, thanks as always for joining us. Remind listeners where they can find you on Twitter. You bet. Just go to at Ray Stern. A new year brought a new governor and a shift in the political dynamic at the state capitol. Katie Hobbs' election as governor changed the tenor and the substance of what has been happening at 1700 West Washington Street. We've seen a record number of vetoes, a raft of executive orders, and a drawn-out vetting process for her nominees to run state agencies. Here to talk about the Hobbs effect on government is Republic reporter Stacey Barchinger. She's covered Hobbs from the 2022 campaign trail to her ascension to the governor's office. Welcome to the gaggle, Stacey. The Hobbs effect. I like that. (laughs) Yes, we want to learn more about that. As we near the first half year of Hobbs' tenure, how would you sum up the Democratic governor's impact on the direction of state government? 
I think it's a little bit unsettled at this point. Certainly, there's a major political shift from our former Republican governor, Doug Ducey. I mean, you hear Governor Hobbs talk about the Arizona economy, but certainly not to the extent that we've seen or heard from Governor Ducey when he was in office. I think we have seen a mix of Team Hobbs playing offense, but mostly defense. Our listeners will certainly recall all that we've talked about about her vetoes. Um, You have a GOP majority legislature that is sending her bill after bill that is DOA on her desk. These culture war bills that deal in what pronouns teachers can and cannot use. There is no universe in which our Democratic governor signs those bills, but they keep pushing them forward. We don't know how Governor Ducey would have acted on those things, but certainly having a Democrat in the state's highest office um, has left a trail of vetoes on the way up to the ninth floor. There has been some offense from Governor Hobbs and her team, of, you know, a slew of executive orders that use her power to go around the legislature on certain things. On day one, she signed an executive order that protected people from discrimination and state employment based on, you know, their gender identity and their sexual orientation. Most recently, we saw her sign this executive order trying to keep power away from county prosecutors who might want to prosecute doctors under the state's current abortion law. Um, She's trying to consolidate that with Democratic Attorney General Chris Mays, who, like Governor Hobbs, will not uh, support any prosecutions of doctors under these these laws. Are those executive orders going to stand? As I recall, I think the Freedom Caucus was going to sue her over that initial executive order on discrimination. Yeah, you know, that's what they said, but they haven't done so. So I don't know what any uh, uh, statute on that might say, but certainly that was a lot of bluster and to date, no follow through. As you mentioned, the vetoes get a lot of attention, but they're a sign of what isn't getting done. So what is getting accomplished in this first half year? Yeah. So in addition to those executive orders, which really kind of get into the weeds of of policy, executive orders can't apply to functions outside of state government. So they generally apply to how government and our about 35,000 state employees operate and function. This might be shocking news, but the governor has actually signed more bills than she's vetoed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That is a surprise. (laughs) So she has signed just over 200, um, vetoed 143 as of Monday when we are recording this podcast, which is record-breaking. You know, that is more than double what our former uh, Democratic governor, Janet Napolitano, did in her busiest veto year. That was 58 um, in 2005. I've seen reports that it's more than what Governor Ducey vetoed in his whole entire tenure of eight years. So that's why that has gotten a lot of attention. But there are these over 200 that she has signed into law. A lot of it is in the weeds. I try to keep an eye on most of those things. Some of them are, you know, very major. Of course, the state budget, uh, which keeps government services flowing to Arizonans. You also have a bipartisan bill that she signed a couple of months ago that sought to keep whole folks who were living in mobile homes who were in danger of losing their homes in various parts of Maricopa County. So that's one of the most high-profile examples of what she has actually gotten done. You know, she's got about two dozen nominees for state agencies that she needs to get confirmed. She's got five of those done so far. And, you know, we might be seeing the start of a learning curve in terms of how she works with the, at times, hostile Republican legislature. When I say that, I'm thinking of the staff turnover that we've seen. 
people have come and gone. She's got a new chief of staff in who has experience working with the legislature. That's Chad Campbell, the former Democratic lawmaker. I've also been closely watching how she negotiates some of these high-profile tasks that she has to get done as governor. You know, if you recall all the way back in January, there was this very tense back and forth where the legislature sent her a budget that there was no way she was going to sign. And it's my understanding that they broke through those initial tensions by the governor sitting down with House Speaker Ben Toma and Senate President Warren Peterson, literally the three of them and their staff, to hash out how they were going to get this done. Say what you want about the budget. Some people say it was good for the governor. Some people say it wasn't. It was too favorable for Republicans because of all those pet projects that got tucked in there. But they did get a budget done early. They avoided the like last minute frenzy, you know, right before July 1st. But then there was this other test, right, which was Prop 400. Are they going to extend the transportation tax? And that's also a negotiation between these big three, Hobbs, Toma, and Peterson? Well, it decidedly wasn't. Um, (laughs) And that's what I think is very interesting. Their staff certainly had numerous conversations about what what a compromise Prop 400 looks like. But as far as I know, Governor Hobbs was in the room just once, and I have asked her about why that was, and she doesn't directly respond. She dismisses the question as, you know, staff was there. You mentioned that Hobbs has about two dozen agency nominees, and certainly the Senate's done a much more intensive backgrounding on these nominees. And the result's been that so far, three of them have not made it to the finish line. A lot haven't even had a hearing yet. On a broader plane, I'm wondering, what's the impact of this new process with the the so-called dino committee? How is that affecting how government runs, and is it making it difficult to recruit candidates to serve in a Hobbs administration? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I've heard from several of the nominees who are in various stages that this is something they really have to prepare for. They know they're going to go in and face tough questions. You know, we've seen this committee scour people's past statements on social media, and I do that too as a reporter. So all well and good, but it is occasionally with a very hostile tone. And one of the first examples we saw was the governor's pick to lead the Department of Health Services. She nominated Dr. Teresa Cullen from Pima County. Uh, Dr. Cullen goes into this committee, and it was hours of intense questioning, some of it quite political about COVID politics. She withdrew her nomination, and we are now four or five months later, and the governor has not announced a new appointee. It's hard for them to find people that are willing to go before this committee that have a shot knowing that the committee is willing to dive into COVID politics and climate politics in the way that we've seen them start to do so. So, you know, that certainly inhibits the governor from putting people who might carry out her policy goals in place in these offices. It also creates um, instability and uncertainty about what things look like over the next six months or year of the governor's first term. And I think part of the atmosphere around that committee reflects perhaps some continued resistance to the governor um, from some within the GOP and the legislature who frankly would have preferred to see her competitor for the governor's office, Carrie Lake, in office. Can't talk about the governor's first six months without talking about Carrie Lake, who is still sort of out there continuing to challenge her loss without success. She has been unable to prove that she is the rightful governor, but continues claiming as much and is apparently considering a run for U.S. Senate. 
certainly still a presence in the Arizona political scene. And I understand that Ms. Lake has a book coming out. Um, I suspect that probably will not get a lot of reading up in the uh, ninth floor of the governor's office. Oh, I believe the governor's office is over it, as uh, <laughs> some might say. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stacy, thanks as always for joining us on The Gaggle. Um, remind listeners where they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, of course. I'm at S. Barchinger. So it's S-B-A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R. Now we want to talk about some things happening that could define Arizona's future over the next 20 years or more. Joining us to talk about it is the Republic's Phoenix City Hall reporter, Taylor Seeley. Taylor, welcome back to The Gaggle. Thank you. It seems like Arizona has had two significant visions for its future come into sharper focus over the past few months. On the one hand, President Biden came to Phoenix in December touting the construction of TSMC. That's the semiconductor manufacturing facility that's under construction here. Arizona hopes that's an important part of a high-tech economic future. On the other hand, Governor Hobbs made clear that Arizona's water security is so uncertain that we're now in the early stages of limited development in the valley. Let's take these one at a time. So how important is the TSMC project along with Intel and and the semiconductor space generally here? TSMC and Intel, the semiconductor industry as a whole, is incredibly important to the future of this valley and this state. The industry is seeing a lot of money infused from the federal government right now. That's supposed to spur a lot of economic development in our valley. And I think probably the most critical component of that is the jobs that it will bring, tens of thousands of jobs that are going to come here, which just means more money in the bank for this state and all of our cities. Arizona has long tried to shed the image of a economy built around low-wage service and leisure kinds of work. This future with semiconductor manufacturing seems like part of a transformation that Governor Ducey used to talk about a lot with a knowledge-based workforce, higher wages that go with it, and all the economy that supports those new residents. I presume this is something that the city of Phoenix and everyone around the valley is on board with, they would like to see happen, yes? Absolutely. I think sometimes when we talk about economic development in the Valley, I feel like there's a little bit of like PTSD from the Great Recession and everything is about what once was and how we can never return to that. And so much of what the problem was, was that our economy was fully dependent on construction. And so when you hear economic development folks at City Hall's talking, their primary focus is how can we diversify our economy? How can we be dependent on different industries? And the semiconductor industry specifically is one that is seen as advanced manufacturing. So you have kind of that manufacturing appeal of tens of thousands of jobs, really solid jobs that are reliable. They're going to be there for a long time. But then the advanced manufacturing side of it, meaning it makes Phoenix look cool. It makes us look futuristic. We've got big wages. We're fancy. Like, come here. You invoked housing and and development a moment ago. That sort of transitions to the other side of all of this. And, And the water scarcity 
we do live in a desert. Sometimes we can forget that with pools and all kinds of creature comforts around us. But this really is a place with a limited water supply. Groundwater is, is a finite resource for certain. So how serious is the water supply problem at the moment? And is that different over 10 years or 20 years or further? Water is always a really serious conversation in Arizona and in the Valley. Right now, the biggest news that has been making national headlines is our groundwater news. And it is important because especially in our suburban cities, the the cities that are farther west and farther east of our most populous Phoenix city, those areas are heavily dependent on groundwater. And so the news that has been kind of creating a shock across the country is news that means we can't build housing, new subdivisions that fully rely on groundwater. Now, the important nuance there is that that really only affects subdivisions in areas like Buckeye and Queen Creek, although Queen Creek is somewhat to a lesser extent because every subdivision that has already been approved for their water is good to go. So we're probably not going to see severe consequences of that news for several years. But we are going to see it eventually in the form of fewer homes being built, which means fewer houses for the incoming workforce from all across the country. Obviously, we know Maricopa County is one of the fastest growing counties in the country. That's going to, I think, be the biggest impact for the industry is when they look here, water is not the biggest concern, and I'll get to why in a second. I think probably going to be the housing. Can we have housing? If we're looking at Buckeye, is there housing for our workforce? On the other hand, groundwater is not the only water that Arizona relies on. We largely rely on surface water, Colorado River water, Salt River water. We've also seen huge pressures from the depleting Colorado River, the shrinking river. So it does put a pressure But this state is really heavily regulated. So for Phoenix specifically and the cities that are closer in and near Phoenix, most of them, I don't want to get too wonky, but they're designated, um, which essentially means their water is solid for the next 100 years. So TSMC, their water supply is good to go. They're going to be fine. Businesses that come here um, and locate more infill-wise and closer into Phoenix, they're going to be fine. Bottom line, is there space for accommodating both the advanced manufacturing that the state wants to see and to manage water responsibly to ensure a sustainable future? I do think so. I think it just might look a little bit different than if we had pictured it five or 10 years ago. We might have pictured it on the same path that the valley has always grown, which is outward. And now we're going to see it more inward probably upward as development has to concentrate in areas where the water is more secure, such as Phoenix. Taylor Seeley, thank you for your time. If people want to follow your work on Twitter, where can they find you? I'm at Taylor Seeley, S-E-E-L-Y 95 on Twitter. Thank you. That is it for this week, Gaggle listeners. Do you have questions you want us to answer or topics you want us to cover? Reach out to us at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com or give us a call at 602-444-0804. 
And if you like the show, please leave us a review and share it with a friend. To make sure you never miss an episode, follow The Gaggle on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me on Twitter at Mary J. Pitzel. That's P-I-T-Z-L. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. The editor and producer of today's episode is Amanda Luberto. You can follow her at Amanda Luberto. That's L-U-B-E-R-T-O. Next week, instead of a regularly scheduled episode, we have an Independence Day special. Tune in to listen. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com.